Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. My name is Barbara Marshman. It's my pleasure to introduce Congresswoman Jackie Speer, author of Undaunted, Surviving Jonestown, Summoning Courage, and Fighting Back. Jackie Speer proudly represents California's 14th Congressional District. She serves on the House Armed Services Committee as the chairwoman of the Military Personnel Subcommittee. She's on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and on the House Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. A tireless advocate for women's rights, Congresswoman Speer is also the co-chair of the Bipartisan Task Force to End Sexual Violence. She started her political career as a congressional staffer for Congressman Leo Ryan. In 1978, Jackie's life changed forever when she traveled to Jonestown, Guyana, as part of a fact-finding mission to investigate allegations of human rights abuses by Jim Jones and the People's Temple. On that trip, the group was ambushed, and Jackie was shot five times. She miraculously survived and underwent multiple surgeries. She observes that looking death in the face can make you fearless. I think you'll find that in her, in her book. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Congresswoman Jackie Speer. Thank you. It's a home crowd. They love it. It is. Um, this is an amazing book. I was just saying to Jackie backstage, I have rarely read an autobiography of someone involved in public life and politics. I mean, that, that produces such a personal story. There, is, there are policy implications woven in, but it is primarily personal, very personal story. Want to talk about why you decided to do that? I wanted to write a book that spoke to men and women about the power of resilience and how all of us in our lives are challenged from time to time. And we oftentimes underestimate how strong we are, um, the vessel of resilience that rests inside of us that oftentimes isn't tested. But when it is tested, I think we're all surprised by how we can cope and overcome. Would you like to um, read an excerpt or two from the book to get us, sure. to get us started? Just to kind of get you in the Just mood. To, uh, get us. <laughs> okay. This is the prologue. I was dying. It was just a matter of time. Lying behind a wheel of the airplane, bleeding out of the right side of my devastated body, I waited for the rapid shooting to stop, then said my act of contrition, praying by rote for forgiveness. I used what little energy I had left to finish that prayer before the lights went out. But the lights didn't go out, and I slowly began to take stock of my situation. I was 28 years old, and I was about to die. My, not, my life would never be the one I had imagined. I'd never get married or become the mother of a boy and girl or leave the world a better place or gently pass when it was my time to go surrounded by loved ones. Instead, my story was coming to an end on a dusty runway in the humid Guyanese jungle thousands of miles from home. I don't know if it's possible to articulate how urgently aware you become of the fleeting nature of your existence when you're confronted with its end. I lay there for what felt like an eternity. Somehow, through the encroaching darkness of my final thoughts, I saw my 87-year-old grandma, Emma, the tough, marvelous matriarch of my family. All I could think of was, I'm not going to make grandma live through my funeral, not if I can help it. I couldn't bear the vision of her sitting in front of my casket, suffering. If not for my reverence for her, I don't believe I would be alive today. 
She encouraged me to summon my will to move. Breathing heavily, I dragged my shattered body away from the wheel. Neither my doctors nor I could explain how I physically managed it, given my state. But I pulled myself up to my feet and stumbled around to take shelter in the baggage compartment of the plane. I survived. Survival against unfathomable odds can make every day that follows swell with a renewed sense of purpose, though not immediately and not for everybody. But with the hindsight of 40 years, I see that my baptism by gunfire guided me into the life I was meant to live, one of public service, one that would ignite the courage to make my voice heard, and one that would carry with it a visceral appreciation for each new day. That sentiment was far from my desperate thoughts at the time. Truth be told, it would have been far easier to have closed the box on Guyana long ago or to have pushed the memory away into the recesses of my mind. What happened in that jungle was a massacre, a nightmare. Though I survived, something within me did die on that airstrip, be it my innocence or my belief in the natural fairness of life. But I can't deny how radically that nightmare molded my perspective and my instincts and how much it has informed the woman I am today. We don't get to choose our formative moments. Very often, adversity and failure shape us more permanently than fortune and success. That has certainly been the case in my life. The major setbacks I've endured, and there have been many, have actually propelled me onward, each one reminding me how important it is to stand up again, as difficult as it may be, stronger and more steadfast. Pain yields action. It can introduce a fervor to speak out for those whose voices are not heard. Surviving Jonestown crystallized where I needed to focus my energy. It convinced me that I had a purpose. All I had to do was figure out how to fulfill it. And then we'll have one more segment here on another horrible trial. In my life, I have been blessed with extraordinary love and brought to my knees by shattering loss. When I returned from Guyana, I decided that life gives everybody their share of misfortune. Mine had just come early in life and was a pretty extreme dose. I was wrong. Life is not always fair. Life is just whatever you get. And while Guyana delivered incomparable trauma, it was not the worst day of my life. I was on my way to Sacramento to give a speech to the California Bankers Association. My district director, Judy Bloom, was driving us through a torrential downpour when I got a phone call. Jackie, my secretary began in a strange voice, there's been a call from the San Mateo police. Steve's been in an accident. Judy turned the car around immediately to drive back. I called the hospital, and they put me through to a friend of Steve's, the same surgeon who had operated on grandma's gallbladder. What happened, I asked, feeling a slight wave of panic. Jackie, it's, it's not good. You should just get here as soon as you can. I hadn't realized how serious it was until I heard the quiet devastation in his voice. We sped to Mills Hospital in San Mateo, where they left me in the waiting room with no further information. I tried to be patient, but finally I couldn't take it any longer. Let me see him, I demanded. He was in the ICU. They had done everything they could. Though his body was still warm, Steve was brain dead. Steve had been broadsided by a young man who had driven in that downpour, even though he knew his car had faulty brakes. He ran a red light at the intersection of Poplar and San Mateo Drive and plowed right into Steve's car. What was all the more twisted was that this young man worked at an auto parts shop. The details didn't compute at the time. It seemed too senseless, too reckless to be true. Word spread like wildfire among the physicians. It wasn't his hospital, but when he was hit and they were bringing him in, the police had repeated... 
He's one of our own. He's one of our own. A doctor there was trying to get me to pull the plug immediately, but I just couldn't. The whole scene didn't compute. Nothing made sense. The lights, the tubes, the machines. Everybody was waiting on me. All I could do was nod yes or shake my head no. I was in a genuine state of shock, staring down horrific emotional pain, slipping through it like quicksand, with nothing to hold on to and nobody there to guide me through this nightmare. My soulmate was gone, and part of me had gone with him. He was being kept alive by artificial means, and they were waiting on me to end it. I shut off my heart and tried to figure out what needed to be done. Jackson. I needed to go pick up Jackson from kindergarten. I had to call Steve's brother, who was in Oregon, so he could fly down and pay his respects. I went to pick up Jackson from school, and we drove back to the hospital. He was dressed in his little karate uniform. I took his hand, and we walked into the ICU together and stood in front of Steve's body in the same way that the two of them had come and stood by my bed with that red rose. Jackson, I said quietly, you need to say goodbye to your daddy. He didn't understand what was happening, but he kissed him and looked back up at me and then asked if he could go to karate. Of course, I told him, and a friend took him away. Steve's brother Ken got on the first flight out and made it down a few hours later to say his goodbyes. I called Father Dan, who rushed to the hospital to give Steve his last rites. After that, everyone was just standing there, waiting for me to make, perhaps, the most difficult decision of my life. I kissed my husband goodbye. His lips were warm. Then I nodded to the doctor and walked out of the room. And you were, at that time, pregnant with your daughter. So I was almost three months pregnant with um, our our daughter, and it was one of those incredible blessings because I'd had two miscarriages, one at 17 weeks, and there just was no expectation that I could ever have another child. So it was incredibly um, good fortune that I got pregnant naturally, and um, we were thrilled and anticipating a new life to, to be born. And, and how old were you then? I was 43. 43, okay. Um, and you were 28 when Jonestown happened. Right. Um, let's go back to Jones, Jonestown for a minute. Let me see hands. Is there anyone here who doesn't remember the basics of that story, the People's Temple cult? Don't be afraid no. to raise your hands. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Maybe all those who do remember, raise your hands. Okay, I think we have, all right. I th- we probably don't need to go back, but with the basic details, but can you talk about the moment there when you realized things were not going as you'd hoped? So let me just go back a, um, a little bit because... The People's Temple was a church located in San Francisco, and Jim Jones was very plugged into the political stratosphere there and had been appointed by then Mayor George Moscone to the Housing Authority. And he had 2,000 members in his, del- in his congregation. There were all these reports of abuse and defections and Congressman Ryan got engaged because a number of his constituents had young family members in their early 20s, late teens, that had gotten involved in the church and uh, had then gone off to Guyana. And so they came to Congressman Ryan seeking his help to find out if they were indeed safe. They were concerned about whether or not their letters were getting through. And so it was on that basis that Congressman Ryan decided um, to make the trip to Jonestown to determine whether or not people were being held against their will. So when we arrived, they showed us around, and it was pretty impressive. I mean, out of a literal jungle, they had carved a community with crops growing and a huge pavilion and cabins and a 
child care center and a medical clinic, and he had to be impressed. But what happened during the evening was we were interviewing many of these young adults and handing them letters and talking to them and trying to sense whether or not um, they had any qualms or did they want to come back home. And all of a sudden, no, we are very happy here. To the to this individual, they all were getting married to someone in the People's Temple, and they had no interest in restoring ties with their families. So that was peculiar. But there was this sense of this roteness to it, that they had somehow been scripted. And then there was this show being put on for the congressman. And at one point, you've probably seen the clip on TV many times where he stands up and says, boy, it sure seems like everyone here is very happy. And the place erupts in applause and laughter. And and it was almost frenetic. It wasn't natural. And it went on for an extended period of time. The NBC reporter who was on the trip had been walking around the outside of the pavilion smoking a cigarette. And one of the members of the People's Temple slipped him a note with two names on it. So at the end of the evening, Don Harris walks up to Congressman Ryan and myself, and he shows us the note. And my heart sunk, because I knew then that everything we had heard about was true, that people were being held there against their will. So that was the first moment that I really knew we were, um, we were in trouble. And did your personal, you were the only woman who was part of that, of that uh, delegation, right? Right. There was another staff member who was um, a man who served on the uh, International Relations Committee, which is what it was called then, instead of the Foreign Affairs Committee. And I was on his personal staff. So there was the two of us on the trip. He stayed back in Georgetown, Guyana, Mm -hmm. um, with some of the concerned relatives who Jim Jones would not allow to come and see their family members. Some family members were allowed to come see their children, but others were not. And from that point, how did your behavior change? What did you do from that point of realization on? Or was there not much you could do? So, you know, it's late at night. I was escorted to the cabin that I was staying in that, was, that housed, I think, four other young women. And I was um, given the top bunk. And these cabins had tin roofs. And it was raining very hard that night. So the, the sound was peppering the, um, the cabin. And I was awake the entire night. And I was just trying to figure out how we were going to get these individuals out. So the next morning, I uh, identified Monica Bagby, took her to her cabin. She was getting her things, although there was a, a guard standing in front of the door, and I was fearful that maybe something else was going to happen. But he let her in. She got her belongings and came back to the pavilion, and then all of a sudden, more people wanted to leave, and more people wanted to leave. So the tension grew um, it was an emotional powder keg. And it was during that time that Don Harris interviews Jim Jones. And Jim Jones says, I don't know why these people are lying and carrying on like that. Yeah. And then uh, shortly thereafter, after I was taking all these oral affidavits, I was taking the first group out because we didn't have enough planes. We had ordered a second plane. But there were still another 40 people that wanted to leave, which gets lost in the discussion of Jonestown many times. So Congressman Ryan was going to stay behind for the second airlift. And I gathered all the people for the first airlift into the bed of the dump truck that we were on. And we started to leave. All of a sudden, Larry Layton comes on to the truck and and he had been espousing how wonderful the People's Temple was and how his sister, who had defected, was um, just a druggie and had all these issues. And all of a sudden, he's on the, on the truck, and I'm thinking, this doesn't make sense. He had a big yellow poncho on. 
So we're starting to take off, and the truck stops because it got stuck in the mud. Meanwhile, up at the pavilion, where Congressman Ryan was, there was a knifing attempt on him. So there's this huge outcry from the pavilion. The truck's not going anywhere at the moment, and all of a sudden, out walks Congressman Ryan in his blood-stained shirt at this point. He gets into the cab of the truck, and we take off for the airstrip. Unbeknownst to us, following us at some distance is this tractor trailer with seven gunmen on it. So we get to the airstrip, and I start determining who's going to be on each of the planes. And a little Guyanese boy had scurried onto the plane, and I'm thinking, we have no room. I'm trying to coax this little boy out. So my back is is to the airstrip as the tractor trailer comes onto the airstrip. And then all of a sudden they started shooting. I didn't even know what, what was happening. I didn't, it didn't register that those were bullets. It was just these sounds. And I, I turned around. Congressman Ryan had been hit, and there was blood gushing out of his neck. And then as I started to move towards him, he was shot again and fell. And so then I ran under the plane and tried to hid behind one of the wheels. And you were shot five times? So uh, they then came among us and shot us at point-blank range. Congressman Ryan was shot 45 times. Um, And I was lying on my left side uh, with my head down, pretending that I was dead. And then they came and just peppered the right side of my body with bullets. And you were there for 22 hours before medical help right. arrived. It is astonishing when you read about the surgeries and everything that had to be done that, that you did make it. Well, it's a funny story. I, I did the Dr. Oz show about a month ago, and of course he's a doctor and he wants to make it medical. So <laughs> as we're talking about this, he puts the, uh, on the, the screen the yeah, schematic of a body where all the arteries are. <laughs> And literally, I mean, you know, it runs down um, your uh, thigh, and here's my whole thigh blown up. But that artery wasn't severed. Had that been severed, I would have bled to death in probably 90 seconds. So he turned to me and said, you know, it's really a miracle that you're alive. It really is. So you came back, you had eight weeks of intensive treatment and then recovery were all your surgeries during that time or did some of most of them were during that time i uh, was then cared for at the oak knoll naval hospital in the east bay where i had uh, care for about a year and where i had one subsequent surgery so after that as you're coming through that and i'm sure this is a mental process as you go along how did you decide what you were going to do next, and how do you think it might have been different from what you would have done otherwise? You know, I, I spoke to 800 high school seniors today, um, <laughs> and I um, told them that you know there's a plan for each of us. Sometimes we're not privy to that plan, but there is a plan. And I had applied to two colleges, Stanford and UC Davis, and Stanford rejected me. Um, I've never let them forget it. Um, (laughs) And, you know, because I was at UC Davis, I was 20 minutes from the state capitol, and that's how my my, passion for public policy started. Um, But I never thought I had what it took to run for public office. Mm -hmm. And I was telling the, the young people today, don't let anyone trample on your dream. And don't, don't ever think that people don't have self-doubts. We all have self-doubts. I didn't think I could do this. So I come home from uh, being hospitalized for all those um, months. And during the time I was at the hospital, I had 24-hour U.S. Marshal protection because there had been death threats um, on my life because the the members of the People's Temple back in San Francisco and those that were in the capital in Georgetown all of a sudden were 
you know, without a leader and, and I think they just were, you know, lashing out. So I'm, uh, I finally arrive at San Francisco airport and, uh, it was an incredible homecoming. That's when everyone could still go to the gate to, (laughs) to see people. And I mean, the, the, the mercy nuns came, um, to the airport. There were lots of friends and family and it was, it was really, it it just made me feel so good because, you know, I had been through a fair amount of stuff Uh, (laughs) and I was alone for a good part of that. My parents came for a a period of time, but for the most part I was alone. So over that weekend I was staying at a friend's house because I couldn't stay with my parents because of the death threats. And it was over that weekend that I didn't feel pain wasn't that I wasn't still in pain, but it was because I was other focused. And so over that weekend, I decided to run for Congressman Ryan's seat. On the very last day that you could take out papers. So I come home on a Friday night. The last day to take out papers to run was Monday. There already were 11 candidates in the race who had been running for over two months. Um, So I go down to the county courthouse. I'm in an arm um, sling. Um, I had no radial nerve, so I could not really use my right hand, and I take out papers. And I ran a six-week campaign and raised (laughs) $25,000. Now, this is 79 now, early 79, so, uh, but still, that was pretty pathetic. And, um, And I lost, but as I told the young people today, losing is really the first step to succeeding because that taught me that um, I, I could do this, that I knew as much or more than the other people running for his seat and that you know, it was not anything to be ashamed of because I had lost. Is there anyone, uh, one of our audience members asks, is, is there anyone besides the congressman that you look up to as a model politically? So you read about it in the book. Um, Grandma Emma um, has an incredible story. She was, uh, had a profound influence on my life. And I, uh, I, I truly... Um, feel that she's one of those people. And then Mother Teresa, I should say Saint Teresa now. I have pictures of the three of them, Congressman Ryan, my grandmother, and Mother Teresa in my office in D.C. But there, is there anyone else politically? Oh, oh politically? Oh, there's, you're not going to get me in that trap. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's a lot it's of people. The audience. The audience wants to know. There's a lot of people that I admire politically. The only thing I, I dislike among my colleagues is when there's hypocrisy. Um, and there's a fair amount of that that goes on in Washington. You know, if you, if you make a, take a stand and you, you stand by that, I have great respect for you, even though I may not agree with you. But to, to constantly be hypocritical is something that I have a hard time with. But we, we have lots of wonderful people who serve in Congress um, who are very committed and dedicated and who really are there to serve the American people. Most of them are running for president. And a lot of them are running for president. <laughs> you are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, Another member of our audience asks, what are the next steps needed in gun violence reform and I think you should tell your story of uh, the legislation. Okay. So obviously I'm a great proponent of gun violence prevention. When I was in the state assembly, I was asked by uh, then-Senator Dave Roberti to carry the assault weapon ban on the assembly floor. So I was called a jockey. So I'm jockeying the bill on the assembly floor, which I'm also a co-sponsor of. And I'm presenting the bill, and then all of a sudden one of my colleagues raises his mic, and that's 
an indication they want to be recognized. He's recognized by the pro tem, and he says, Miss Spear, I have a question for you. I yield. Miss Spear, I have a question for you. I had to say it a second time. And then he says, have you ever shot an assault weapon? And I look at him, and I'm thinking, are you that stupid? <laughs> so then he, he repeats it again. Have you ever shot an assault weapon? So much as to say, well, how can you take, carry a bill banning them if you haven't even shot one? So I turn to him, and I says, no, I have not shot an assault weapon. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever been shot by an assault weapon? <laughs> And he sits down, (laughs) and uh, his colleague behind him says, good job, Ted, Uh, (laughs) referring to Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore show, who always, uh, (laughs) and so the, the, the assembly floor is quiet, and then the roll call is called. The bill flies off the assembly floor, and this shows you the difference between Uh, then and now. That bill was signed into law by then Republican Governor Pete Wilson. And the original version was signed into law by then Republican Duke Majan. So it was an issue in the not-so-distant past when Democrats and Republicans could come together and vote in a bipartisan fashion. Now, the bill that uh, got off the House floor, H.R. 8, got off with bipartisan support. I think there were six or eight Republicans that voted for it. And it is simply, simply a comprehensive background check. It closes the loopholes that exist if uh, you are a felon, if you are deemed mentally ill or have committed a misdemeanor domestic violence. You're not supposed to be able to own a gun. That's the law. And that's why we have background checks. And they're instant background checks. In most places, you just can buy it right then and there. Here in California, we have a three-day waiting period. But the loophole was that you could buy the gun online. Or you could buy it at a gun show. Or you could buy it from a private party. 40% of the guns are bought by private parties. So it was all those circumstances that created opportunities for people who shouldn't have guns to get guns. So long-winded answer, I apologize. It is now on the Senate side. Whether or not it's even taken up will be very surprising. But as I said to this group of young people today, We will have gun violence prevention and assault weapons bans as soon as the ossified baby boomers are kicked out of Congress and all of you young people are elected. This uh, reminds me of of the discussion of the book of the horrible scarring that you had to deal with because of the extent of your, of your wounds and, um, Want to tell the walking on the beach story? Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, my, my the right side of my body is is um, very um, deformed. I have uh, lots of um, skin grafts, and I was a keloid former, so it, it's not very attractive. And for the longest time, I just made sure that when I was at a pool or in a beach setting, I, I was just covered. And you can imagine as a young woman at the time going through a relationship with someone and getting to a point where you have to explain to them um, the, the fact that you have these, this, these scars. So I was in Hawaii and I was um, on the beach and it was really beautiful out. It was mid-afternoon and... I just decided that it was time for me to get over this. So I took the sarong off and walked along the beach. And there were a few people that looked, but most people could care less. They've got their lives to lead. So it was an empowering moment for me to embrace the way I am and, and 
recognize that it, it is part of my persona now, and I don't have to be ashamed of it. Uh, I can you know, move on with my life, and uh, it was a very, very um, both empowering and um, compelling experience personally. Thank you. I can, I can picture that. It's lovely. Um, so this is a question, I, and I'm not, I'm not sure uh, about some of the information behind it. Uh, this is asking about uh, prosecutions in the Jonestown mm. massacre. Were there, were there people actually prosecuted after that? So Larry Layton, who I told you about with his yellow poncho, he, I didn't want him on the same plane with the congressman and others, so I put him on the smaller aircraft. But before um, he w- was um, allowed to go on, I asked one of the reporters to frisk him because my intuition just told me that it didn't make sense. So he frisked him, but not well enough because Larry Layton had a gun. And he got into that plane and... Um, at the point when all the other shootings started, he started shooting. And the other persons, the defectors on the plane, were able to um, grab the gun away from him, and it fell out of the plane. So eventually, he was brought back to the United States, and he was charged with conspiracy to assassinate a congressman. And he was convicted, and he served time in state prison. And then his sister, who had been one of the defectors, who had informed us of all informed us of all the misdeeds that were going on, uh, started a campaign to try and get him paroled. So, I'd say maybe eight to ten years ago he was paroled. And uh, the question goes on: Do you feel it's a victim's right to be notified if if the person who harmed them is released from custody? Well, I, of course, I think that people should be informed. Uh, when my husband was killed, the young man who killed him was um, charged with uh, vehicular manslaughter. And I didn't want him to serve any time in state prison because I didn't think that was going to help him. And so I just wanted him to serve time in, in county jail. Years later... Um, he uh, contacted the court and wanted the felony reduced to a misdemeanor. And in San Mateo County, the judge, who I will not name, um, took that um, step and and reduced it to a misdemeanor, but never informed me. Hmm. So there are circumstances when I think victims even today are informed and circumstances when they're not. Yeah. There are lots of good questions here from the audience. I want to make sure we talk about, um, at the end of the book, at really the very end of the book, you talk about uh, being sexually abused as a child by your paternal grandfather, I believe. And it, as we were talking backstage earlier, and I was saying it, it's, I, I wondered about the reasoning for having it at the end and not at the beginning when you talk about your family, um, in which case it would have shaped, I think, perceptions of more of what happened. Want to explain that? So I struggled with whether or not to talk about it. And it's in part at the end of the book because I wasn't going to write about it. And then I thought to myself, you know, is this really fair? Because this is your memoir, and yet you're leaving out a significant part. And, you know, once again, I realized it happens in so many families, and we feel so ashamed by it that we don't talk about it. And I thought I had a responsibility to be forthcoming about it so that I would be yet another voice talking about how 
I was impacted by that. In writing the book, and by the way, I encourage all of you to write your stories. You find out things about yourself you never knew. And when I was writing the book, I remember thinking, why is it I am so concerned about, why do I have such a passion around issues of sexual assault and sexual harassment and rape? And then one day it just clicked that it really probably relates back to that childhood experience. Do you feel that it did shape your perception over the years, well, perhaps your strength in dealing with some of the challenges? You know, I, as, a, as a young person in later li- in life, I just compartmentalized it. I didn't think about it. I didn't talk about it. I mean, I had told my mother about it um, when I was a little bit older. Um, and I just would not let it somehow impede my ability to be uh, who I am. But it was in writing the book that I realized it had a lot to do with why I have such an outrage associated with it's really good that people you, um, yeah. being harmed like that. Mm-hmm. Um, a question, a more contemporary question. What is your view of Governor Newsom's moratorium mm-hmm. on the death penalty, and what's your own position on the death penalty? So uh, Governor Newsom has this uncanny ability to uh, address really profound issues upon taking office. (laughs) You might remember that when he became mayor on Valentine's Day, he decided to marry uh, gay couples in San Francisco. And I actually went up and I must have married, I don't know, 30 or 40 couples that, that, uh, what what did we call it? Weekend of love. or (laughs) Uh, And so this is not surprising that he would, you know, take on this issue. And I think he's somewhat compelled by the fact that he's looking at these death row inmates and the decision that he would have to make. So I actually applaud him putting a moratorium on uh, the death penalty. My view of the death penalty has evolved over time. I actually, for a good part, excuse me, of my career, particularly when I was in state legislature, Uh, supported the death penalty in two cases, um, where there were double felonies and where there was a killing of a police officer. But as we have spent more time looking at the issue and the costs, it costs less to keep someone in prison for their life than it does um, having them go through the legal process that um, the death penalty allows for you know, many appeals. So I, uh, I think this is going to be a, a very good conversation that we will have across this country. And then you couple that with the fact that there are wrongful incarcerations and that low-income people and people of color in particular often don't have the same quality of counsel that people who have money so they are represented differently. Um, I was very concerned about the battered woman syndrome and how women were serving time in state prison for having killed their abusers when I was in the state legislature. And we actually had a hearing at the Frontiera uh, prison. And more often than not, these women were in prison, some of them in their 70s at this point, because they had lousy counsel. Yeah. Um. Switching to current politics, um, a member of our audience says, as a moderate Democrat, I'm worried about the rise of the far left. I'm afraid that the uh, two ideals will divide us further in the next election, 2020. What is your take? You've been more or less a moderate Democrat over the years. I know Silicon Valley likes you. No. <laughs> Sometimes they do, sometimes and sometimes they, they don't. Uh, likes a political <laughs> um, leader all the time. So I would say that you know this this freshman class is made up of sixty one or sixty two new members. Many of them won in 
districts that Trump won in 2016. So our ability to retain a majority in the House is going to be um, somewhat related to our ability to make public policy that appeals to all Americans. Now, having said that, um, you know, the progressive agenda is 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 not one that we should necessarily be afraid of. I mean, health care for everyone is something that every industrialized country, every industrialized country, but the United States of America, has universal health care. And we spend more money on health care than any of these other industrialized countries, and we have worse outcomes. So a a Medicare for all program that would be phased in over time really makes a lot of sense. Now, it probably wouldn't be the Canadian model. It would probably be more like the German model. But I, I don't know that that's something that any of us should be afraid of. But I do think we're very cognizant of the fact that there were a lot of moderates that got elected and that our policies have to um, reflect uh, the interests of all those who serve. How would you label yourself at this point in your career? I don't like labels. I am not in the Progressive Caucus. I'm not in the New Dems Caucus. I'm not in the Blue Dogs Caucus. I I just, I rebel against labels, so I don't have one. (laughs) Good. How do we prevent the McCarthyism rhetoric from emerging in 2020 as a powerful, galvanizing, American-only versus communist Rhetoric. Well, that's going to have a lot to do with you know who are the nominees. I mean, clearly, the president is trying to label Democrats as socialists because they've polled it, and and that scares people. Um, I hasten to add that we have socialized medicine in Medicare, and we have Social Security, which are social-based programs. I'm more concerned about the hate and vitriol. I mean, my heart broke this weekend once again when the president maligned John McCain, who was a war hero. I'm concerned about the white nationalist movement. I just read coming over here, we've now identified seven members in the military who are white nationalists, and it was identified through their social media. We can't, we can't engage in that in this country. Yeah. And yet it's been almost promoted. So it's really important for us to shut that down. Yeah. Speaking of social... Speaking of social media, several people have asked about what you think of the role of social social media in the coming election, particularly Mm. presidential in 2020. Um, And the overall value of social media is, is it on the whole a good thing or having observed it, with it being basically non-existent when you started your, totally non-existent when you started your political career to now, what do you feel um, is positive, negative about it? So social media is here to stay. The Congress really dropped the ball in not doing a job in terms of regulating it. It really, um, we, were, we were way too enamored with this great economic engine that was not just fueling this region, but having impacts across the country. And it was a young industry, so it was, it was um, our fault that we didn't regulate. But let me tell you what I'm really afraid of. I serve on the Intelligence Committee. So I've seen up close and personally how easy it was for the Russians to intervene in our elections with the ads, with the creating of communities, with um, the hiring of people to create rallies, an effort to divide our country. And they did it pretty cheaply. And 
because we are such an open society, we are really ripe for the plucking by Russia and by China. Do you know how China um, uses LinkedIn? They have an open book. It's like they're yellow pages of scientists and engineers in the United States that they can um, befriend or or ping and ask them to come to a conference and attempt over a period of time to um, either indoctrinate them or get them uh, to become an agent for them. And here's a source that we see and use for, for, for good, and yet it's being used by others in a very uh, negative way. So both China and Russia, in particular, engage in a lot of uh, efforts on social media to undermine our democracy. And do you think we have the capability to deal with that, to prevent it the next time around, or are we still, is it still just completely a moving target? Well, we have to do a better job of informing the public. You know, there are about 100 Confucius centers at universities across this country. And it was billed as an opportunity to learn Chinese, and I think it's becoming more and more clear that it's not that at all. It's a way of getting um, persons in this country to uh, spy on us Hmm. and to identify people that might become agents for... um, for China. So again, we our openness is makes us vulnerable. So it's important for us and I I've said this to our colleagues in the intelligence community, how much have you gone out and informed colleges about the fact that maybe these Confucius institutes aren't so good. Now some of them are starting to decline those invitations, but uh besides the Confucius institutes there's um there are other programs as well. So we have to just be much more alert to the opportunities that exist here for our adversaries to do us harm. Yeah. And it's my impression that the president isn't helping that. Do you feel as though... Um... Well, he gives Jared Kushner a security clearance when the intelligence community says he shouldn't. He uses his personal cell phones to make calls that I'm confident the Chinese know what he's saying if we don't. Um, yeah. yeah, so there's, there's, some, there's some behavior that is not helpful in terms of protecting our country when those kinds of activities are engaged in. What do you think is the potential at this point of the United Nations as far as its future utility? Um, do you think we should continue funding it uh, or contributing to it? Well, the United Nations is a, a very important component of our national security. And if you look at all of the various agencies within the United Nations, um, UNESCO comes to mind off the top of my head. I mean, these are important programs that help us make friends around the world. You know, it was uh, Secretary Mattis who said at an Armed Services Committee hearing when he was, when the, the State Department was being hollowed out, and there were many of us who were alarmed by it. And we asked him, what are your feelings about what's happening in the State Department. And he said, the State Department is as critical to our national security as the Defense Department is. Yeah, I think, I'm not sure if it was him or someone else who talked about how there is a, um, a negative correlation between the, the number of diplomats and the number of people being killed on the ground, that the less diplomacy you have, the more military you can think. Do you want to hear a funny statistic? You know, there's this there's this idea by some that we spend way too way too much money on foreign aid. It's really budget dust in the budget of um, the federal government. 
And there are more persons who play in our military bands than there are diplomats in our foreign service. Wow. That's amazing. And that was the number before the Trump administration or? Yeah, yeah. that was the number before. Before Let's make you really upset. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. Or nervous. (laughs) Talking about prisons and probably goes back a a bit to the, um, the women you dealt with. How do you feel about the increased privatizations of prisons throughout the country? I think it's an abomination. It's, it's a way to feather the, the nests of uh, people who uh, have contributed to the campaigns of, mm-hmm. of some and that it, it, it kind of builds this whole um, industry around incarceration. You know, when I was in the state legislature, I took on the prison guards union. Um, just for fun. <laughs> and it, I, I ended up taking it on for, uh, not intentionally, actually. I was chairing a select committee on government oversight, and we installed what we called was a red phone. And people could call the number and leave us whistleblowing cases, um, tell us if there was something going on of waste, fraud, and abuse in the state government. And over the course of maybe a month and a half, most of the calls that came in were from the uh, corrections department. Hmm. And then we started investigating it. And lo and behold, the contract for the prison guards union was seeing a 37% increase over the course of... I guess three years to five years, whereas the salaries for the professors at the University of California were going up only 3%. The contracts had all these provisions that allowed for um, you to call in sick today and I get double pay and then tomorrow I'll call in sick and you get double pay. So there were all these games that were being paid and the prison guards union was all about building its union. So it wanted more laws on the books and so they were big proponents of three strikes and and building that union. So for Duke Majan and Wilson and I believe uh, for Schwarzenegger and, and Brown and maybe even for Newsom, they would write million-dollar checks out to their campaigns in an effort to curry favor so that when their contracts came up, they would be held in high esteem. So, and then the the private uh, prisons kind of evolved out of that, and oftentimes they were prison guards who left um, the public sector and, and started up in the private sector. So, you know, if you make them, they will come is kind of the, the line there, I think. I think we are probably nearing the point of our last question. I'd like to know how your family is, your, your second husband, Barry, the kids. How is every, what, what is everybody doing? So the rest of the story is kind of a sweet um, yes. ending. So I was a single mom for eight years, and then I had a friend who wanted to introduce me to this guy. Um, and she kept asking him if he would go out with me, and he said no five times <laughs> on five separate occasions. And then finally we went out, and we had a terrible date. And <laughs> then we went on in a couple of more dates. And he was 50 years old and single, never been married, and he was a fly fisherman. Do I look like I fly fish? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, Barry uh, and I got married uh, in 2001. And the sweetest part of the story is that he adopted both Jackson and Stephanie. And he still fly fishes, and I still don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it's pretty up on Montana. Montana or, um, where are the kids now? What so the kids. Do? So uh, Jackson is a software engineer at LinkedIn. 
<laughs> and he did go to Stanford. Uh, and Stephanie is a broadcast journalist, uh, TV anchor in Colorado Springs. Jackie, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it's my been, pleasure, Barbara. It's been thank a delightful you. evening. For the, our radio audience, we have a standing ovation here. Thank you. For Thank you all. I hope you enjoyed this evening's program brought to you by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. Again, we'd like to thank Congresswoman Jackie Spear, our audience here in Palo Alto, and those of you joining on the radio. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. (laughs) 